Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Lee Procopio, with Consultant 360. Community-acquired bacterial pneumonia, or CABP, is a leading cause of death in the United States. Understanding presentation symptoms and how these presentations impact the need for inpatient versus outpatient care is the first critical step in improving patient outcomes. To learn more about treating patients with CABP, Consultant360 reached out to Frank Lavecchio, who is the Medical Director of Clinical and Community Translational Research at Arizona State University and the Principal Investigator for the Infectious Disease Network Studies. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. To begin, could you briefly discuss some of the typical and atypical presentations of CABP? I love that question. It needs to be broken into pneumococcal pneumonia and others because pneumococcal pneumonia was considered typical pneumonia and it was the big killer. And interestingly enough, it's still the big killer today, although the, the strains and the presentations and the variants have changed a lot because of you know, normal antimicrobial lifespans, but also because of vaccines, et cetera. So typical pneumonias are ones that usually give you shaking chills, lots of sputum. Nowadays, it's evolved into on chest x-ray, it looks like a lobar infiltrate. Whereas opposed to atypical, you know, might have slower progression, might give you a hacking cough, a cough that's typically non-productive, but any cough eventually will become productive, right? If you cough hard enough, you're going to bring up some you know, lung particles, et cetera, or some inflammatory tissue. And then your chest x-ray many times doesn't show the classic lobar pneumonia. I always say this, but then I'm always cautious and say, look, not everybody with strep pneumo has just a low bar infiltrate, and not everybody with atypical you know, has these patchy sort of infiltrates. How do those clinical scenarios impact site of care decisions? You know, the most important question you ask is who the patient is, how does the patient look? How the patient looks, it's pretty obvious, you know, if they look like they're dying, they're septic, their vital signs are abnormal, their blood pressure is low, their respirations are fast, their oxygen is low. Those are things that in front of you, you know, are very important. But sometimes they might look okay, but still be considered high risk because of their history. And some of the things that you have to clue in on the history, obviously, is the age, comorbidities. You know, are they immunosuppressed? You know, do they have HIV? Have they received medications for malignancy recently? Chemotherapeutic agents put you more at risk to develop worse pneumonia and unfortunately higher mortality. So the things you should ask for, you know, lots of us, when we see these patients, we have like little checklists sometimes to see how likely the patient is to decompensate and how likely they are to do well if they were sent home. And I think it's become a little bit easier, although none of the checklists are absolutely, you know, 100%. But, you know, you can make a pretty good judgment just by good history and physical. So that leads me a bit into my next question. How do these presentations and courses of treatment differ in various patient populations, such as in older adults or patients who are immunocompromised? I think one of the things we use initially to evaluate patients is severity scores. Two popular ones are pneumonia severity index and the other one is PERB 65. These help us in the sense that they make a risk for the patient based upon prior studies. But there are, unfortunately, shortcomings of both of them. For example, if you look at PERB 65, you know, it doesn't really have hypoxia. So if you were 64 years old and you didn't have uremia and your respirations were, you know, okay, and your blood pressure was decent, the PERB 65 index would say you're safe to go home. But what if their oxygen was, you know, 90%? 
And a lot of people pre-COVID would never send a patient like that home. Things are much different now with COVID. We do push the envelope a little bit in the sense that we send people home with hypoxia, you know, if they have good follow-up, especially if they have oxygen, especially if that's the only thing wrong with them. I don't know if we're going to totally adapt that to bacterial pneumonia, but I see the writing on the wall for that. I think the push is to adapt that more bacterial pneumonia to send people home with oxygen. But on your initial evaluation, I think you should ask about age, comorbidities, and try to adapt one of these indexes. You know, personally, I use the pneumonia severity index. I feel like it's a little longer. It tells me a little bit more about the patient. The negative with it for me is that it requires me to check some laboratory work, which I don't always do. And I don't always do because, you know, it's not necessary based upon you know, clinical judgment, which also is held in very, very high regard in treating patients with pneumonia. The other thing you should consider, you know, now is, you know, do they have COVID or not? Other things are such as, you know, do they need influenza testing, et cetera. And sometimes uh, when the incidence is very high, it changes your management. If everybody had influenza during that time of year, well, you're checking the boxes here for pneumonia severity index or curve 65, and you find out that a lot of those patterns fall into what would be present with pneumonia or for COVID-19. Because of that, maybe you don't pay as much attention to it. Those severity scores are usually for bacterial pneumonia, and they're most commonly validated in patients who have a, a typical pneumonia or a low bar pneumonia. As you move along, though, and as you get a little bit older and have more risk factors, you know, PSI scores of three or four, or approaches to five scores of one to two, you usually push the patients towards a, a general four admission bed, maybe a med surge bed, or maybe observation, for example. And always bring up blood culture pretty early on. I think we are very worrisome about getting looked at from CMS or other outside agencies. And because CMS is looking at us, I think the hospital is looking at what we order and do. And because of that, we're very aware of it. And I try to break it down into getting blood cultures this way. If you're very sick and going to the intensive care unit, you need to get blood cultures before you give antibiotics. If you're going home, you're not supposed to get blood cultures. But the middle one is hard. And the middle one is if you're going to be admitted to the floor and you're going to get blood cultures, you have to get them before you give antibiotics. Like always, so it's good practice. So for me, in the emergency department, sometimes I'll get blood cultures. I know that it's really not going to change what I do, but many times I'll get blood cultures and hold them or maybe hold the blood. And if the internist wants to get them, I'll, I'll allow them to send them because it is more important for me to start the antibiotics. There's a lot of cool other tests that came out that could particularly help you to figure out what kind of pneumonia they have. Not everybody uh, has them. You know, some people use gram stains and cultures, you know, you know that's fine, but not always uh, obtainable. But there are some uh, streptococcal urine antigens. There is some Legionella testing. And I bring up Legionella because the atypical pneumonia is one, if not the, the one with the highest mortality. You don't want to miss that doesn't occur that often, thank God. And, you know, as you get sicker and sicker, you know, PSI scores of four or five, you're going to be more likely to go to the intensive care unit. And you probably want to get all those, those laboratory data, try to figure out exactly what they have. Eventually, you might be able to do um, bronchoscopy. Um, it's not something we typically do in the emergency department, but sometimes it gives you more accuracy with regard to, you know, what the patient needs, antibiotics, et cetera. 
And many people, if you make it to the ICU with pneumonia, I know if you make it inpatient at our institution, we like to offer you HIV testing while we're giving it to people for free or checking it for free, cooperation with the Department of Public Health. I think it's a good idea to offer that to patients who have pneumonia. How does symptom severity impact their presentations and treatment regimen? When you think about uh, symptom severity, I think I put myself into you know, who the patient is, but with regard to symptoms, you say, look, are you coughing? Yes, no, and are you bringing stuff up? And if you're bringing stuff up, you know, people argue, you know, this sputum culture is associated with this and that. I think it's been disproven. And what I mean by that is much of sputum is usually coming from your posterior or pharynx. And because of that, you know, the colors can be different. I threw myself into whether it's bloody or not. I threw myself into it's very frothy or not. They have shaking chills. Shaking chill is classic for a strep pneumonia. Sometimes I see patients who have multiple shaking chills and they end up having pneumococcus or strep pneumonia. And residents will ask, well, I thought I was to have one shaking chill. And the reply is always, the patient didn't read the book. You know, so people can present atypically, but severity, as far as you know, shortness of breath, comfort level, fever, are also important things to ask about. Uh, respiration rates. And I also try to say, does it fit? You know, just because they have a cough and fever and shortness of breath, it doesn't mean they can't have other things. As an example, sometimes they have pulmonary embolism. And, you know, I always remind people when I evaluate them that, remember, very, very common presentation. So it looks very, very much like pneumonia. I think one of the things that can help you is most patients with pulmonary embolism will have cardia and the cardia is usually you, know, you can't get their, their heart rate down despite treating their fever, despite treating their hypoxia, etc. Obviously, there's many tests you should run for evaluation of pulmonary embolism if you suspect that. Maybe you do D-dimers, maybe you do CAT scans. And I think, you know, if you're being admitted to the hospital, you know, you're probably considered high risk and sometimes you CAT scan better some blood tests. What are some clinical pearls you have found when choosing between inpatient and outpatient care for individuals with CABP? Well, I think for me, like to try to figure out, you know, whether you need inpatient or not, the best thing to go with, you know, I, personally, I think is one, start with your clinical judgment. You know, if the patient looks really bad, you're probably not going to send them home. What I mean by really bad is you look at things like the CURB-65, which is pretty straightforward and easy to remember. So if they have any one of these, you should admit them. But that confusion, you know, they considered low risk, 2.7% 30-day mortality. So on those, you know, if they're level one, if they have one point, many people will try to or consider admission. Some others will say, hey, you know what? They can go home if they're reliable and all the other things are okay. These are typically patients that maybe look okay, but if they have confusion, you know, that trumps everything. You know, if they're confused, they're going to remember to take their antibiotics, et cetera. So the curb 65 will type they have confusion, that's only one point, and if it's the only thing, they could consider outpatient antibiotics. But if you have two things, almost everyone will typically admit you. Even if you look at the curb 65 rules, they'll say, look, you have two points. For example, the mortality at 30 days is about 7%, you know, 6.8% to be exact. I mean, that's a high percentage of people that are going to die at 30 days. And that's if you only have two things. The other things that we look at, you know, confusion, BUN, BUN, you know, over 19, I usually say BUN 20, 
respiration 30 just helps me remember these things. Blood pressure 90 over 60, obviously is lower than those. And then age over or equal to 65, hence the term curve 65, which is I get effusion, BUN, uremia, respiration, or R, blood pressure. So I think most people, when they have three risk factors, you know, their mortality rate you know, shoots up to about uh, 14%. That's pretty high. The problem I have sometimes is I see somebody and they're infused, their respiration rates are under 30, their blood pressure's okay, and maybe they're 65. Well, I might not check labs on them, partly because I, didn't, I don't think they're necessarily needed in this person. But I have to realize that there's a small chance, even though they look good, that their BUN is high, and that would have put them in a high-risk category. So if I'm not checking the lab many times, I'll often give them that one point. And a lot of it is maybe it's not available to you because you're, you know, you're primary care office, et cetera. You don't want to send them off to lab. They always tell people to err on, the, if you're not getting a lab, to err on the fact that they were positive. I think, you know, I think more accurate, you know, PSI or port score, in my opinion, it asks more things and you're less likely to miss some of the important things. Of course, it asks about age. It asks about sex. And it turns out in this case, um, that it's better to be female Females have a lower risk of dying from pneumonia. If you're a nursing home resident, I think that's important. That's one of the things that Curve 65 doesn't ask about. But I think if you're a nursing home resident, you're more likely to have resistant organism, and that would make you more likely to treat, and it's more likely to have morbidity and mortality. If you have an issue of cancer or neoplastic disease, or liver disease, congestive heart failure, and it's interesting because liver disease sometimes we take for granted, and realize that liver disease is very high. You're given 10 points for all of these things. The liver disease is 20 points. Neoplastic disease is 30 points. And things that we would miss on the herb 65, you know, become a little bit more important than this. If you have a history of a stroke, if you have a history of a renal disease, if you have altered mental status or respirations, you know, over 30, those become very important in this. Also, much like herb 65, there's a lot of overlap, but Altered mental status, you know, kind of compares to curve 65 confusion, respirations over 30, and systolic blood pressure under 90. You get lots of points with that with the PSI, specifically 20 points for each of those. And also, if you have extremes of temperature, you know, I think this is good. It takes temperature into consideration. If your temperature is 40 and above or under 35 Celsius, you get points for that, meaning those are considered negative. And if your heart rate is uh, elevated, uh, heart rate elevated is 125 in this. I think most people would agree that if you saw somebody with community acquired pneumonia and they looked otherwise well with their heart rate is 120, you know, despite maybe not being hypoxic and general fluids and Tylenol, they're probably not going to go home. The other good thing about this is it does ask about oxygen, which uh, CURB-55 doesn't. And it looks for partial pressure of oxygen less than uh, 60. Okay, lots of us just do oxygen saturations. That corresponds to a saturation, you know, give or take of 90-ish, depending on where you live. The other things it looks for is laboratory data, and we don't always do that you know, on every patient. But if they're sick enough and they check some of the boxes above, you should consider lab, particularly you know uh, CBC, because if their hematocrit is low. Um, they're more likely to have higher mortality. I don't think white count matters that much. It's not included in any of these risks, 
what the UN is, sodium is, if their sodium is very low, they're higher risk. If their glucose is very high, they're higher risk, which kind of incorporates them being a diabetic risk factor. I think things have changed. You know, I think just remember with COVID, a lot of these things will be positive, and then you look at them and it can probably you know, go home. Is there anything else you would like to discuss about when you would utilize the pneumonia severity index, the CURB-65, or the expanded CURB-65 when evaluating these patients? In using those risk scores, we talked a little bit about them, CURB-65 and PSI scores. I think one of the things that you should think about is clinical judgment. And there's some studies out there where clinical judgment is as good as these scores. Always remember that clinical judgment probably gets better with age or it doesn't happen right away. I think you have to be out of residency and practicing for a little while or seeing multiple patients like this for a while. And in general, you know, you, you get a little feel of what these patients look like and then you're able to use like your clinical judgment a little bit more. I think the other important things that happen as you move along in your career you realize sometimes you realize that there's a lot of social aspects that you have to consider. Um, what I mean by that is it's great. You figured out that the patient might need outpatient antibiotics. What's well, the criteria for outpatient antibiotics? And when you do that, you establish, okay, I'm going to give you this antibiotic because it's best based upon these guidelines. And then you come to realize the patient can't afford it or they're uninsured, for example. And I think you have to be you know, very specific about that. Their social situation is always very important. Great. Thank you again for answering my questions today. Thank you.